0: Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. We're here today to talk about Aspiradac. And the, we've got a three way going on today with lots of different company names, and it's all very complicated. So I'm going to let the guests do their own introduction. Welcome to the show. Who are you and who do you represent? Hi,
1: Andrew. My name's Julian Turchek representing Aspiradac. Uh, we are a project developer for Direct Air Capture.
0: And what does a project developer do?
1: Well, a project developer puts together the some components of a successful direct air capture project. So we have chosen a technology and Rowan from Southern Green Gas will introduce himself. We find a site for storage. We organise regulatory approvals, debt and equity financing and offtake agreements and all of those components we put together to create a successful project, which then goes on to make a final investment decision, which then triggers the the construction and then the operation of the project. In many ways, it's it's very similar to putting together, say, a utility scale solar photovoltaic farm, something like that.
0: And Roman, would you like to step forward and introduce yourself?
2: Sure, Andrew. I'm uh, Roman Gillespie. I'm the founder and managing director of Southern Green Gas. So we are developing direct air capture technology and pursuing carbon removals market in conjunction with Aspiridac.
0: Okay, so are Aspiridac like an exclusive licence partner for you or can anybody come along and uh, take your technology and build a direct air capture plant?
2: So in in Australia, we're working exclusively together on carbon removals. So uh, yes, hand in glove as we and grow the market
0: and so you, you say that you're um technology developer so are you from a corporate background or is this a university spin out or a shed project how, how did it all come about
2: well it, i kicked off my involvement in DAC back in 2015 when i was advising the national research organization in australia who were developing uh, metal organic framework technology And I suggested they get into DAC, which they did. So I cut my teeth on understanding the technology, which is metal organic frameworks, very high surface area, nanomaterials. And when I put together Southern Green Gas, I approached University of Sydney, one of the world experts in MOFs, metal organic frameworks, and we've gone from there.
0: My understanding of your process is that there's several innovations in what you're doing, and most notably the form factor, right? So this doesn't look like a normal DAC plant. Could you just step us through exactly how you see this uh, being developed as your technology is implemented?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting statement, Andrew, a, a normal DAC plant. There's not too many out there, so it's a, it's a sample of uh, not many. But, uh, yeah, I guess we're doing three things differently from from others like Climeworks and Carbon Engineering, as I mentioned, we're using metal organic framework absorbance, which the others are not doing. We have our energy source completely embedded within the module. In other words, we actually have solar PV panels as part of the module, and we have quite small modules. Each module is intended to produce two tonnes a year of CO2 with the intention that we will mass manufacture these modules to get the cost down. So those three things really differentiate us from other deck developers
0: that's really interesting because i remember going to see climbworks and i had not a squabble with them but i had a discussion with them where i said to them that you need to stop doing what you're doing and build a car factory right and what you've done in terms of your technology approach is that you've actually gone and built the car factory right you you've got the um the design methodology which is based on having small rep applicable highly optimized units rather than having one single large plant that does everything like carbon engineering or having a much less strict approach to modularity. So could you could you talk me through the design decisions behind that and also the manufacturing? I mean are you going to be manufacturing these units and then shipping them off to your development partners or do you just have a set of drawings and that you kick back and put your heels up while you uh, watch mm-hmm. other people slave away and make your modules for you?
2: yeah it was, it's quite insightful Andrew around the car maker approach we've just brought on board a manufacturing expert into our team who's come from 20 years in the automotive automotive industry in Australia and and he's fallen in love with our approach and he said Pretty much the amount of air you're handling through your system is the amount of air we put through a six-cylinder car. So he he gets it and he says a lot of the componentry in the auto industry can be applied to your module because we've sized it to, to, to that effect. So our intention is to manufacture the core components of our modules in Australia. And by core components, we have a, a, a system where we have a cartridge, which is, The absorbance coated onto a substrate. We call that a cartridge. And in fact, our manufacturing expert said, You guys are a bit like the Nespresso model. And I love that because, you know, we're improving the coffee beans and making them more sustainable. Well, that's what we're doing with our absorbent and our cartridge. Fits within a canister. We can interchange it in and out as the technology improves. But all the componentry is amenable to mass manufacture.
0: So your cartridge is where the moth goes, right? That's correct. And then the rest of it is air handling equipment and things like that, right? Pretty much. Okay. So one of the things I remember from looking at your technology is I think you're using resistive heating. Could you talk me through that choice? Because it's not a very efficient way of heating something. And if you've got a lot of insulation that is striking your units, then you could use either a PV heat pump or you could use a concentrated solar power to generate the heat necessary to desorb. The carbon dioxide. So, why did you decide to go for resistive heating? If I do actually remember you touched that correctly.
2: Yeah, yeah. We actually, in one of our earlier designs, we did use hot water as our desorption heat. It turned out to be very slow. A lot of inertia in the system. A lot of heat up and cool down time. The good thing with resistive heating is it's very fast. So you're very off quickly, on quickly, and off quickly. And it is quite efficient. You can get up to eighty five percent efficiency. See with resistive heating, and we we tailor our absorbent so that we minimise the mass of the material that's being heated up. So when you look at the overall energy balance, it's it's very very efficient.
0: So when you're you're heating up this absorbent material, right? Then what proportion of the energy that is being used goes into the desorption, and what proportion of the energy goes into just heating deadweight material, right? Because not all of it goes, I mean, that's one of the advantages of electroswing that your almost all the energy you put in goes to desorption. But anything that's thermal, you have thermal mass in your adsorbent, you've got thermal mass in the substrate, if there is one, and then you've got thermal mass in the surrounding components, right? So what energy, what's the ratio of energy that goes into the desorption step versus the deadweight heating step?
2: Yeah, you you really know your stuff, Andrew. These are good questions. Firstly, I'd say in terms of the substrate, one of the measures we use is the weight of the substrate to the weight of the absorbent. We're down to about two to one at the moment, which is probably the lowest we've ever seen in any substrate options that we've looked at. But secondly, the, the substrate is an insulator. So the absorbent material that we coat onto it is all that we heat up and probably half of that is, a, as you so-called, dead weight, which is really a carbonaceous material that gives us a resistance which sits within the sweet spot that allows us for to do efficient resistive heating. So probably about you know, twice as much, again, as the weight of the absorbent is, is, as I say, this carbonaceous material to affect the resistive heating.
0: I think what you're saying is that you're got around twice as much deadweight material to adsorbent. Is that correct? From a thermal mass point of view. Is that right?
2: That's right. And that's out of, I think we looked at about at least a dozen different substrate systems. That's that's the best we've seen so far.
0: Yeah, but even the adsorbent material has still got a, a deadweight heating issue, right? Because not all of your energy goes to desorbing the CO2. So when you look at the combined system, are you using, you know, 10% of your energy for desorption or are you using 90% of your energy for desorption and only 10% for deadweight heating?
2: Uh, look, it's, so the, the desorption energy out of your total energy balance is probably around about, I'd say, 70% of the total energy consumption in the module. And as you say, probably half of that is used to heat up the deadweight portion, which I say is carbonaceous material to facilitate the resistive heating. But it, you know, there's lots of trade-offs when you put together a DAC product, in terms of the weight of componentry and your energy sources. It's it's not it's not that simple. It looks simple on the face value, but when you get into it, there's an enormous number of trade-offs. And I think we've come pretty much to an optimal solution.
0: Saying that around 70% of your energy use is the desorption step, and about half of that is dead weight and half of that is thermochemical. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So about a third of the energy that goes into the plant is used for the desorption step. A third of it is dead weight heating, and a third of it is computer control, air handling, pumps and valves, and general balancer system.
2: Yeah, correct.
0: Okay, right. And... So you're using uh, solar PV to to do this. Are you using new custom-made components, or are you reusing e-waste? Talk me through the, the setup for this. I, I don't know whether you're looking to. Is this like a non-primary use case for solar panels, or are you always using premium quality solar panels?
2: Well, I'm not sure what you mean there, but we, we just use a new newly purchased PV panels configured in a, looks like a two person tent. So we we had them at a roughly a 60 degree angle. So it looks like a teepee or a tent. They faced east and west, so that we get a, a fairly flat profile through most of the day in the sunny locations where we're intending to put these modules in regional Australia. And, and that, they work in conjunction with batteries so that we can run the modules 24 seven.
0: Okay, so, but if you're using batteries, then wouldn't it be more efficient to put your that plant on a south-facing uh, aspect so that you can optimize the energy input rather than flattening the curve?
2: Yeah, with with south-facing panels in the northern hemisphere or north-facing panels in the southern hemisphere, you get this big hump in the middle of the day, which is a pain in the neck in terms of of energy storage. So it actually works better to have a flatter profile. Which we achieve with the east-west facing panels. So instead of trying to store your midday energy and distribute that during the night, we don't do that. We and we end up only needing, you know, 14 hours of storage with the average 10 hour sunlight day.
0: Are you working 24-7 then? Correct. Okay. Um and why have you chosen to use solar PV as a as your sole power source rather than using a grid connection or something like that so that you can benefit from using the grid as basically your battery because the grid will take your energy out of your plant during the daytime. I can see why you'd want to cover something outside the solar panels because there's a good opportunity to take a siting benefit, right, from what you're doing and then uh, and use it as a way to locate solar. But I'm not clear on why you're storing all your power internally rather than using the grid as a battery.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I get asked this question a lot. There's two reasons. One is that with DAC, you can be anywhere on the planet. So where do you want to be? Well, we want to be where the energy is cheapest, and we want to be where the sequestration site is, or the carbonation site is. So DAC gives us locational flexibility, and also in terms of cost. So if we bought renewable electricity off the grid, we'd be paying for somebody else to generate solar, distributing it, bumping up the voltage, putting it through a system, and then delivering it through the grid and to us. Whereas with the PV panels directly on top of our modules, we virtually have zero balance of plant. So you just have the cost of the modules. So it's it's by far the cheapest form of energy. So solar. In Australia, in regional Australia is probably the cheapest electricity on the planet, a hell of a lot cheaper than wind. And we have even cheaper source of energy because we have no balance of plant. No no structural costs, no wiring costs, no transformer costs. And of course, with DAC, we're locationally wherever we want to be in terms of what we want to do with the carbon dioxide.
0: And do you pre-compress within your um Little modules, um, or do you uh, send it to a separate compression plant?
2: Well, in the case of carbon removals, we we have just enough compression at each module to get it all to a central location, and then if it was for sequestration underground, it would be compressed at a central spot to you know supercritical pressure before being injected into the injection well.
0: Okay, and. Could you talk us through what these actual modules look like? Because I've seen a picture. You've probably got a good way of describing them to people.
2: Yeah, so the, the PV panels sit on top, as I mentioned, in a triangular shape so that they self-supporting, so they act as a structural element as well as keep the sunlight off the process equipment. We sit the, um, the, the modules and the frame underneath on what we call ballast boxes, which are just basically poly tanks filled with local sand, and they are counterweights to stop blowing over in high winds. So we have no concreting, no piling. We have, as I say, these ballast tanks. And underneath the PV panels, we have our equipment platform, which supports the canisters and the cartridges where all all the sexy stuff happens. And then we have equipment around that vacuum pumps, the the batteries, compressors, valves, fans, or sits underneath the PV panels. And then what we do is we just abut these modules next to each other in north-south spurs, and that can go on for hundreds of metres, kilometres, depending on how large a DAC project you want. And we separate these spurs by about 10 metres to prevent overshadowing from the sun So we have all these north-south spurs separated by 10 metres and that forms our DAC farm. And
0: how big can you get these farms to be before they start interfering with each other?
2: Well, because each one does about two tonne, we don't see any interference in terms of, you know, depleted, depleted, CO2 depleted air interfering with the one adjacent to it. We actually bring the uh, air in from underneath and it, the depleted, COT depleted air blows out the top. So we actually get a natural convection flowing. So there's no interference between them. So there's no limitation to how many modules could be deployed on any one site. The only limitation is how much land is available. And in regional inland Australia, we have vast amounts of non-arable land, which has no uh, higher value purpose. So
0: you've talked me through the design of this. Uh, I'm trying to understand the the physical form factor. So they're shipping containers. And if you're going to do a modular design, why wouldn't you make them look like shipping containers?
2: Well, because you've got to power with them with some energy. Uh, we, we're we not doing the Iceland of geothermal. The Because it's an energy-intensive process, you want to minimise your energy costs. And to do that in Australia with lots of cheap, non-arable land in, in sunny climes, we use solar energy. And uh, you've got to work with the sun, so you can't sit it in a container. And plus, there's a lot of metal that goes in the container, so more mass, more cost. So we're, we're trying to minimise the mass of the module.
0: Yeah, but the, the flip side of that is that you can't recover your modules as easily for factory refurb. So are you intending them to be serviced in the field or brought back to the factory?
2: So all the uh, all the bits and pieces that sit around the the cartridge are all designed for, you know, 30, 40, 50 year life. The PV panels, you can get warranties for 25 years, but they'll last a lot longer than that. The, the framing around it, the equipment platform, the ballast boxes, all designed to last decades. But what we've built into it is the functionality to be able to easily replace the cartridge as the technology improves, the absorbent technology improves. So that's how we've... Um, handled that issue
0: that's your nespresso bit right that's right and so talk me through the moth because we've had somebody else come on this show and basically say that uh, even in the driest parts of the world like the atacama desert in chile you can't uh use moths because they're thirsty and there's always more water in than in the air than co2 so you get preferential absorption onto the moth and then you end up getting gummed up with water and there's in fact one company that focuses on precisely that effect as a an application because they you do a joint recovery so they recover the water as a as a product and the co2 is a product as well so it's designed to be used in areas of the world where it's a a real challenge to get the amount of water in uh, that you need like such as Countries apparently like England and France, although I don't think they're necessarily going to be located there. But they're more thinking of kind of edge case applications like military and stuff like that. I think. But how do you manage to get overcome this thirsty moth problem?
2: <laughs> so you've done your research, here, Andrew. It's that—that that is the heart of the the issue with handling moths for direct air capture is that the um, even in these dry areas where we're going to deploy them, there's ten times as much water in the atmosphere as there is CO two. And they're similar-sized molecules, so they compete for space in the uh, moth. But um, water
0: so Water's polar and uh, CO two is non-polar. There's no lone pair on CO two, so can you talk, talk me through the chemistry of exactly why they've got that competing absorption? Uh,
2: well, I'm not a chemist, so I'll have to wheel in my professor Diana DeLisandro to answer the intricacy of, of that in, in a chemistry way. But the, the solution we've come up with, the water vapour helps with the mass transfer of the CO2 into the MOF. And in fact, we get twice as much uptake with humid air than we do with dry air.
0: And so what happens to the water that gets absorbed at the same time? Does it just get rejected and dumped onto the ground or what?
2: So, um, so some of the moisture in the air is absorbed with the CO2 the vast majority of it just goes straight out the uh, exhaust with the nitrogen the oxygen for the stuff we do absorb we have a water trap between the the canister and our vacuum pump so we use a temperature vacuum swing absorption so we have a water trap and then when we're vacuuming out the um the co2 we trap that water and uh, and get rid of it
0: so is it a temperature vacuum swing or Correct. A thermal Tem- Tem- temperature vacuum. vacuum so it's
2: resistive heating, which provides the temperature and the vacuum yeah. pump provides the vacuum.
0: Okay. And so you, despite other people saying that moths fundamentally can't work, we actually had someone come on this podcast and said that moths just can't work. I tried every possible moth and there's no way you could get it to work. You, you're you convinced that moths can't work. it would be interesting to see you fight that one out with him. I feel like I standing in the middle as a. I'm certainly not a chemist. I might know a few things about other aspects yeah, of uh, yeah. capture, but I'm not a chemist. So I'd, I'd be interested to understand. I mean, how do you address that complaint? So obviously, we can't get well, a I direct guess, comment. But yeah,
2: one of one of the one of the methodologies used is to apply a hydrophobic external coating to the moth, and uh, you'll see these lovely photos of water droplets perfectly round, sitting on the surface of this hydrophobic coating. But it's the Gore-Tex effect. So when you wear Gore-Tex clothing, it sheds rainwater but allows your sweat to breathe through it. And that's exactly the issue here is that people can devise an external hydrophobic coating for moths that will shed liquid water but unfortunately won't repel water vapour. So external hydrophobic coatings tend not to work. For moths and you've got to use other strategies.
0: I've seen um like a pre-filter approach with moths. So you have a like a I don't know whether it's another moth at the front, but you have one that's got a low affinity for CO2 and then one that's a higher affinity for CO2. So the idea is you take your water out in the first one and then you take your CO2 out in the second one. Is that an approach that you considered or not?
2: We have considered that in the early days. It is energy and cost prohibitive to Uh, to dehumidify the air before you put it into the DAC unit. It'll never be viable. So you have to address the water vapour in the air in the DAC module itself with the absorber.
0: Yeah, that's why one of your competitors has got a system which is designed to co-produce water and CO2, right? I can't remember the name of the company. It's a bit annoying. might put them in the links if I remember. Now, why have you chosen these arguably quite challenging MOFs rather than going for the more conventional... uh, amine on various different kinds of substrates. We've got people have come on here and talked about in quite some depth about different amine approaches and how you mount them into inert substrates that you've yeah. gone from moth. So what's the advantage of moth? Why would you why would you do that?
2: Yeah well some of the substrates that I refer to like silicas and zeolites they're a bit a bit of a um a bland bit of material. There's not a lot you can do with them. You can't really dress them up and Take them out to the ball, whereas with uh, MOFs you can tailor their properties. You can do all sorts of things with MOFs. You can post-functionalize them after synthesis. You can add, mix and match different linkers between the metal ions. There's all sorts of things you can do with MOFs, which you can't do with other frameworks. So, but just to clarify,
0: mo- for people that are people that are in sort of new to this field, my understanding is that MOFs is that they're nanoscale structures, right? So that the they are you've got metal um, atoms inside the uh, in, inside an organic framework it's not like a lump of metal with some organic wiped on it with a cloth or anything like that you know you, you've got a very intricate molecular type structure going on here right so the thing i'm trying to understand yes you can play with your moths but they're all, all based on porosity, aren't they the moths so they all have the same issue with the if sort of joint affinity for water so how do you how do you address that sort of others have regarded as a kind of critical weakness for moths because the reason why people don't people who don't use moths don't use them is because of this water affinity problem right so if you've got an amine based substrates like Climeworks, amine based functional groups like Climeworks do then you don't have this water affinity problem because their their binding is not based on the porosity of the molecular material so they don't have the issue that you're describing i wonder if you could comment on that
2: i could but i choose not to sorry andrew this this is about as far as i'm prepared to go in terms of disclosing our technology
0: oh secret squirrel okay well that'll leave us guessing in terms of whether your substrate actually works but in in theory your your substance that you're using for binding is actually an independent element of the process isn't it because if you've got a tvs modular um engineering system then there's no particular reason why you couldn't have um an enemy sub substrate and um adsorbent cartridge in this you could potentially take the carbon uh, the the climate not the carbon engineering one because the carbon engineering one's a high temperature one but the climb works if they made nespresso pods or you you license their technology and you made nespresso pods based on their substrate then and and absorb and, and you could uh, in theory, make the whole thing work with their tech, couldn't you? That would be possible, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so as okay. I say, we've designed it so as technology improves, we can just change out the cartridge.
0: So you're, would you say that your sort of key innovation step, therefore, is the modularity and the integration rather than the particular adsorbent and substrate co- concentrate combination that you're using?
2: Well, it's a combination of things. It's the the smart engineering and the modularity, which has been patented. The I mean, the use of PV panels is not is not novel, so you can't really patent that. But it's also the absorbent as well.
0: So. I'm interested. You, you keep saying absorbent. I keep saying adsorbent. Is that a fundamental difference of understanding of the chemical processes, or are you just using a kind of colloquial shorthand? Or how how has that difference come about? Well, my
2: my. Chemistry professor says it's adsorption with a D as opposed to absorption with a B.
0: See, I've, uh, I'll take her word for it. I've been using the right consonant, so um, fine. So, do you view this as being a sort of catch-all solution to DAC, then, or do you believe that this has got applications in certain situations that wouldn't be where where other technologies might not be as appropriate?
2: Well, certainly a a quintessential Australian um, uh, solution because we're probably one of the few places on the planet where there's huge amounts of non-arable land drenched in sunlight with lots of existing infrastructure and and favourable geology uh, and where people want to invest their money and there's fairly low political risk. So Australia has...
0: What's the the geology that that you work on? Are you using basaltic absorption or what, what? How are you disp- well, disposing of saline aquifers
2: or what? Yeah, there's, so there's two two types of um, carbon permanent storage. So you can either use geological formations, either depleted reservoirs or deep saline aquifers. So Australia is well endowed with that. Uh, or you could use um, uh, volcanic rocks, rocks and carbonate those. And Australia is well endowed with those as well.
0: Okay, I didn't realise that. I thought there was very little volcanism. In Australia, um certainly in the central area, it's a very stable craton, isn't it? It's uh, Australia's not a very geologically active place.
2: Um, well, it's, there's a volcanic arc that runs up and down the east-west coast. We've had volcanic activity as you know, as near term as I think, you know, a few million years ago. Yeah, because so the- you're
0: you're on the edge of the ring of fire, aren't you? The continental interior, which is where you kind of have got all this non-productive land. My understanding is that that is Sort of quite standingly geologically stable as a, as a place. So I wouldn't have thought that you'd have a lot of volcanic-based rocks in that area. I would have thought they'd all weathered away over hundreds of millions of years since the interior of Australia has been volcanically active. But maybe you're you think you're thinking about locating it more on the in the coasts and the sort of continental edge, or are you thinking more locating in the continental interior, or what?
2: Yes. So you're right. We don't have any. Uh... Active volcanoes, but we do have some fairly recent in geological time anyway, volcanic activity. In North Queensland, there's, there's significant basalt outcrops. You know, we've had up to about 25 different lava flows over parts of North Queensland. There's a major volcanic province that spans the Western Australian Northern Territory border up in up near the Ord River scheme in Northern Australia. So there's plenty of near-surface or at-surface volcanic rocks which are amenable to carbonation, rich in magnesium, calcium oxides. But yes, the vast majority of Australia is covered in sedimentary basins, which prospective for deep geological permanent storage of CO2.
0: Okay. Uh, so you're imagining this is a not necessarily uniquely Australian technology, but suited to the Australian climate and geology right so how do you see this technology growing over time obviously you've got your australian license that's sold already so where else in the world would you expect to be able to do it i'd imagine oman would be a quite a good area because they've got lots of um, olivine tight rocks i think is it heard done tonight or am i getting that mixed up and you can you can you've got a similar hot dry climate there lots of sunshine would that be another obvious place that you could put it
2: yes yes we have had inquiries from oman Specifically in relation to their their rocks that are amenable to carbonation, yes, we've also had some interest from a a developer in the south of Chile, where it would be powered by wind. So we're talking to them about adapting our module to run on, you know, external power as opposed to solar. You you wouldn't put a
0: little wind turbine on the module. You you'd actually have a. Okay. I mean, like, wind turbines get much more efficient when they're a lot bigger, don't they? So it would yeah, no, apparently,
2: apparently the wind in southern Chile blows 70% of the time. So um, it's probably the cheapest wind energy on the planet down there. So, yeah, we can adapt for external energy sources. But I think other places where our solar module would work would be places like uh, Texas and New Mexico, Nevada, parts of the U.S., North uh, North Africa, you know, Algeria, uh, and maybe Spain to a lesser extent, but there's not a lot of available land in Spain. Well, oh, there so, will be um, soon
0: because it will be an uninhabitable hellscape by mid-century. <laughs> so that's something to look forward to. The... Um money shot is obviously the most important thing in CDR. So how do you compare on cost grounds? So from what I recall, I think uh, carbon engineering are claiming that they're going to get to $93 a tonne. I don't know whether anyone believes them or not, but uh, I think that's what they claimed in one of their papers. So where are you going to get to with this? the price of this?
2: Well, so our cost reduction is is in part due to you know smart design integration benefits, but it's largely due to Designed for manufacture and then using mass manufacture to get down the cost curve. So, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of our componentry can come out of the automotive sector where they make, you know, hundreds of millions of these components every year. So that's our approach. I think carbon engineering is way, way, way at the other end of the scale where they're building, you know, massive refineries, high temperature pipes and all this sort of stuff. So... We, we tell people we're in the business of making appliances, plug-and-play appliances.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think from a manufacturing point of view, that's a great idea. But if you're fundamentally limited by issues such as heat transfer and energy costs and stuff, then you you can make your plant as cheap as you like. But if you can't run it, then you're never going to be able to make things work inexpensively, right? So uh, hope you could give us some clarity on whether you your design does hit fundamental efficiency limits.
2: Yeah, well, when we so um, our uh, joint venture collaboration with the Spira DAC has a uh, well-defined path to get down to the $100 a tonne figure that every other DAC developer is chasing. We believe we can get there with module manufacturing volumes as low as 50,000, which when in the scheme of things in terms of the saving plan is quite a... A small number, so we actually. So get
0: fifty thousand would be if you have got two tons per year per unit, then that's a yeah. hundred thousand tons per year, so one kiloton, and you're down already at uh, um that's right to a hundred dollars a ton, right? That's right.
2: That's that's the um, leverage
0: we. get What well, the kind of offtake agreements being sold at the moment? My understanding is that Microsoft's buying in the cut in the kiloton range. So is it not possible that you could be in there in that hundred dollars a ton range? You know, within the current buying power of. The markets we've got today. Yeah,
1: I'll
2: hand it over to Julian for that.
1: Yeah, thanks, Rowan. So obviously we have a pipeline of projects uh, that goes from the current the first project is aiming at one tonne a day or 310 tons per year. As Rowan said, by the time we get to a hundred kiloton project 310
0: tons? Uh, what do rates, do your plants have do your plants have holidays? They have to take the weekends off.
2: Yeah in Spain, yes.
1: Yeah, so we're allowing for, there's two things. We're, we're factoring in an allowance for capacity factor. So any, any machine anywhere in the world won't run 100% all of the time. And the other allowance that every DAC project needs to take into account is that if there are any emissions associated with the carbon removal process, for example, if there are emissions associated with compression, then they need to be netted off. So when I talk about 310 tonnes per year, taking into account capacity factor and a net off for uh, compression. For our first project, we're we're assuming that there'll be some emissions involved in compression, not in the actual capture, but in the compression. But going forward, we're planning solar-powered compression as well. So we we basically take that life cycle analysis, that LCA piece from 6% down to 8%.
0: Okay, so, sorry, can you clarify the, the point about compression? Are you talking about the on-unit compression or are you talking about the supercritical compression? No, I'm talking, talking the compression. Two?
1: So there'll be, as Rowan said, we, CO2 is collected, metered, and then piped to a compressor where the compression takes it up to supercritical. That's the process that I'm talking about that, that consumes energy. And, uh, okay, that can and either so be that could potentially fuel, be solar powered as well? It can be solar powered as well. So, we're, we're, Rowan...
0: What's the barrier? Why, why can't you have small pumps on the on the actual device that do the supercritical compression? What's the inefficiency of distributed compression as well as distributed collection?
1: Well, we, we don't want to have... There's no point having sort of high-pressure handling of CO2 and especially going through a metering station. We imagine that all of that can be sort of done at low pressure and then just step up once into, into supercritical. You know, we could do it in... Stages, so you know, each sort of set of modules could, could be a step up, but it's really just about having that low pressure collection system and low pressure metering.
0: So, what you're saying is that there's an efficiency gain from centralizing your supercritical compression, but there's Correct. an efficiency gain from distributing the collection and having a modularized collector. Correct. Now, just give me an idea of the sense of scale. How big are these things? So I kind of imagine being a bit like garden sheds. but I have the scale concept completely well, wrong. The, in my the head. modules
1: are about, just say, two metres by two metres by two metres, sort of like a two-man tent. That's the kind of scale for each module.
0: Okay, so not far off a garden shed then?
2: No, that's about it, Andrew. Yeah.
0: yeah. So what about market? One of the biggest opportunities in this space is CCUS, right? So you're kind of optimised to go out to some godforsaken wilderness and pump this stuff in the ground and you can do it in an off-grid kind of way like a sort of Mad Max type environment which was actually filmed coincidentally in the same environment you were operating in but you don't have to do that you could go and sell it to Lanzatech or Sunfire or whatever to go and make it into liquid fuels so is that viable or is that just not the right setup for this would you just go and use a different technology if you were going to sell to those kind of markets?
1: Well, you can go either no way. So obviously we can capture uh, CO2 for, for those other uses. Uh, we, oh, The Spiritax parent company is a company called Corporate Carbon Group, and it's, its history has been in climate change and carbon abatement projects. So direct air capture is uh, a focus for us in the sense of uh, really accessing the and, and providing a new supply to the carbon removal market. So, the carbon removal market is uh, for us probably one of the, the the prime targets for revenue. In that we we have large companies uh, deciding to do offtake agreements from uh, for, from other companies, but also as you can see with with the frontier announcement now from this our first project. So we're quite. Excited about the opportunity to to be providing carbon removal into that market. It's not to say that there aren't other markets that we can look at, including you know carbon neutral fuels and and the rest of it. But in the first instance, we're focusing on carbon removal.
0: Okay, so you think the commercial opportunity for you is big enough in the carbon removal space? You don't need to go for the high value stuff or high value output.
1: I would just say carbon removal is a high value product in That's itself. That's
0: what I mean. Yeah, I understand that, but. I corrected myself to say high-value output, right? So a high-value output might be you know, graphene or something like that, right? People might pay tens of thousands of dollars a ton for high-quality graphene, but they're not going to pay that for carbon removal. That was that was the point I was making. So yeah. in terms of purity, what's your output purity?
1: Uh, Rowan can probably answer that one.
2: Yeah, so we're in the high 90s. So the only impurities are a bit of nitrogen, a bit of oxygen, and a bit of water vapour. So, uh, yeah, high 90s.
0: Okay, so some processes really aren't that fussy. If you're sequestering, I think, into a saline aquifer, it doesn't really matter if you've got extra gases in there and that's where you can use unfussy processes like Klaus Lackner's Silicon Kingdom stuff. I think if you're trying to do reactive, then you want something that's a bit purer because you have issues of getting into the pore space and you don't want to be carrying down stuff that blocks up uh, the the pore space that you've got with... uh, extraneous gases that's my understanding but you can probably correct me on that because i'm probably wrong so uh, i think i've covered much of what i wanted to talk about i mean we haven't spoken much about the kind of commercialization of it in terms of um you know who are your customers now who do you expect your customers to be in future that kind of stuff yeah
1: i can yeah so the path to profitability and the path to that hundred dollars a ton target is is really just about building this first project that we mentioned, uh, 300 tonnes per year. And then we're already working on project two, uh, which is aiming to be 5,000 tonnes per year. And then we'll scale up uh, from that again, again, around four to 10 times on our way to that 50,000 module run. Uh, it's very much, if you've seen Klaus Lachner, we mentioned just before, wrote a paper last year called Buying Down the Cost of DAC. And it really goes to the heart of this modular approach of uh accessing lower price carbon removal by taking an approach to the large scale manufacturing of these modules. So that's pretty much the approach that we're taking uh, between Southern Green Gas as a technology provider and Spiridac as the commercialization partner. So we are currently, as we speak, uh, talking to a number of parties that have expressed interest in buying the remaining carbon removal volume from the first project. So Frontier report the first 500 tonnes. We're in a discussion with a range of other parties about the rest of that volume. Once the first project's away, then we can start marketing the volume from the next project and and then the one after that. So that that's our, our broad pathway to get to commerciality. Obviously, everyone's interested in lower priced carbon removal. But the point we make, is that we can't get to the lower prices that are available from larger scale manufacturer until we've done the first project to
0: prove that. So, one and who, project who's bearing the commercial risk that? on that? Because you've got a develop, you've got a technology developer, and then you've got a project developer, right? And the project developer holds the IP. So, it looks like the, te- the project developer is bearing all the risk, and the, and the uh, technology developer is getting all the benefit because obviously proving out the technology is a huge benefit when it comes to selling it but the project developer is putting the money into and taking the risk for you know the deployment and potentially some of the some of the engineering i wasn't quite clear on who makes the modules but how does a commercial deal work between the two of you so Southern
1: Ring the- us make the modules we are buying them at uh, an agreed price so that effectively uh something bring us Selling the modules at a margin that they're confident uh, they can be profitable, and we're buying those modules at a price where we can demonstrate to debt and equity investors, including ourselves, that there is a viable project return, uh, given where we see the offtake, the carbon removal offtake market at the moment. So,
0: okay. That- so, from your point of view, you're you're kind of te- not your technology independent in that you're just buying something that you're told is wor- works and. And you're quite happy with that as a deal because you're not, you know, the, the deployment risk is uh, is is yours in terms of, you know, which bit of land you put them on. But if they don't work properly, then you just send them back and ask your money back, right?
1: Yeah, well, we, we've got a process whereby that we're actually building three demonstration modules as we speak. So we we will commit to the first project once we see them actually running the, the one tonne a day equivalent volume from those three demonstration modules that are being built in Brisbane at the moment. So that kind of de-risks the project for everyone in that we can see that once those demonstration modules are are running successfully, then that triggers then a financial decision and then the production of sufficient units for the one
0: ton a day project. Okay, great. And uh, are you able to share the Commercials with Frontier, or are you not able to do that? Because I think they're quite cagey, aren't they, about what they pay everybody?
1: Actually, Stripe, who are leading Frontier, are actually taking a bit of a open book process approach. So you can actually see on the website everyone's application to their uh, to their buying rounds. Uh, so you can see ours. You can see Sisteras and Climeworks and 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 so on. Uh, so and I think they've published the price that they're purchasing these 500 tons at which is US $1,000 a ton and uh so all of that is available publicly.
0: Yeah, it's and- not so high because um the you know the works were you know $2,000 a ton I think when they were buying the first lot of them so they're not giving you a massive premium I don't think. So um you're and who are the investors for the technology owner? Southern Green, yes.
2: So uh, myself and my co-founder own about 50% of the company. We've had some, you know, the three Fs, friends, fools, and uh, family. <laughs> and then we've had some family houses come in. And the last round, we all had also had a couple of VCs come in. But
0: you've not got a bazillion dollars like Climeworks then?
2: No, we're not at that stage yet. We're, we're hoping to become unicorn status. We're not there yet.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's all that. That's very exciting. So are you looking for further investment and further development partners or not?
2: Yeah, we have a capital raising open at the moment. So we're, we're looking to do a small capital raising as we speak.
0: I'll put a link to that in the description for people. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up or are you? Uh...
2: I think it's worth noting a big question we always get asked is scalability. And for people that don't live in Australia, usually don't get it. But you know, to get to a million tonnes per annum of CO2 from available land in Australia is, is a walk in the park. There is yeah, so much I, I, available.
0: If you've got yeah. a modular process and you've got, you know, you're not you're not relying on un- unobtainium to build your plant out, you're just making more PV panels and more compressors and things like that, you know, they're not rare items. There's a bit of moth magic going on, but I guess that's scalable in terms of just making more chemicals, right? and yeah, australia is right. a pretty pretty big place and there's only about four people that live there so it's not going to be you know you can you can use a lot of australia without anyone noticing so, yeah, doesn't, right. so i don't have concerns on scalability for this so i think it's really interesting what you said i just to sort of sum up I, you know i think the proof of the pudding is in the eating when it comes to whether you can hit your numbers both in terms of manufacturing scalability and in terms of process efficiency it contradicts a lot of what i know and I'm, have been told about the moth affinity issue, whether you can overcome that co-affinity for water, and there's questions about the um uh, the efficiency of resistive heating. But those aren't necessarily insurmountable. It'd be really interesting to see how this develops and whether you can, you know, have you know the, the trade-offs ultimately benefit you, where an efficiency loss here is benefited by a manufacturing scale there, right? So even if these are fundamental within their own process, they're not necessarily fundamental in terms of the whole thing taken together, um, which has to include all of the costs, right? And manufacturing and scalability of manufacturing is a huge part of that. And as we've seen from PV, which has scaled enormously.
2: Yeah, that's right. We 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 aim to make ourselves a moving target. We'll keep going down the cost curves through manufacturing economies and it makes it harder for our competitors to, to match us or beat us because we're a moving target.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I think on that note will wrap up, and I'm going to hold on whether I reject you or not until I've seen a bit more of what you do. At the moment, I'm uh, quite positive about this technology, although I do see limitations in the moths and the um, heating. And you might decide to adapt those with new technologies in due course. But I do think that the fundamental approach of making a car factory and not a chemical factory is a fundamentally more efficient way of doing that. So, uh, chapeau to you on that one, and I hope it works. and we will come back and speak to you again and see how how it did work when you've got a bit further along. So nice. thanks so much for coming on. And uh, <laughs> people who want to give you their hard-earned cash can uh, follow the links and uh, find out more about your fundraising. We're not affiliated. We don't get anything from this. So uh, don't come and sue us if you lose all your money.